The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. Throughout the 20th century, the Detroit Mafia established itself as one of the most organized and successful crime families in the United States. Officially founded in 1931 under the leadership of William Blackbill Toko, the family, known as the Detroit Partnership, built an underground empire, essentially using the millions it made during Prohibition as a startup fund. Smaller and more secretive than the crime families of New York and Philadelphia, the Detroit Mafia has quietly persisted as one of the most powerful, loyal, and unassailable crime families in America. Join me now as we take a look at the life of Gunnar Allen Lindblom, a child born into the world of organized crime. You'll learn how one of the most violent enforcers on the streets of Detroit found redemption and love in the unlikeliest of places. When Detroit mob boss Black Bill Togo was arrested for tax evasion in 1936, his brother-in-law, Joseph Zarelli, was appointed boss. Zarelli successfully ran the Detroit mob for the next 41 years passing away in 1977 without ever admitting he had any involvement with organized crime in Detroit. And with his passing, leadership was transferred onto his nephew, Jack Toko. The secrecy surrounding the Detroit Mafia is without equal anywhere else in the United States. But this isn't by accident. Their strict code of keeping membership exclusively within the family has been the key to their success and unparalleled loyalty for nearly 100 years. In 1973, Gunnar Allen Lindblom was born to Grace Carmela Toko, the daughter of a respected mafia member in Detroit, and a last name that still to this day carries the weight of mob royalty in the Motor City. But Gunnar's father, wasn't from one of the families. In fact, he wasn't even Italian, thus making Gunner an outsider by birth. He wasn't a pure Sicilian. He was a half-breed. In Italian, he was called a defetto. And although he was raised amongst the mafia elite, because of his defetto pedigree, any respect or position within the family would have to be earned the hard way. Here to tell his story about his rise and fall within the Detroit Mafia is Gunner Allen Lindblom. If you were to hear my name, Lindblom, you really wouldn't associate it with being Italian or Mafia or anything like that. However, my mother was Grace Carmela Toco. It's a name that's kind of synonymous with the Mafia in Detroit. It's well known. It's been proven. The boss of the family convicted of running the Detroit Mob, his name is Giacomo Black Jack Toco. Giacomo Black Jack Toko's father was Black Bill Toko, who was my grandfather's great uncle, and Jack Toko was my grandfather's first cousin. 
Gunner's parents' relationship was rocky from the start. His father, George, was an alcoholic who often hit his mother. Within a few years, Grace left the marriage, but didn't reveal any of the abuse to her family, a secret that almost certainly spared George Lindblom from the mob's retaliation, a decision that would ultimately bring her son closer to the influence of her family. The secrecy and loyalty of the Detroit Mafia cannot be overstated. Throughout the Detroit Partnership's entire history to this day, only one member has ever turned state's evidence and testified against the family in court. But that doesn't mean people didn't know who they were. My parents divorced when I was four, and so I went and lived with my grandparents' Togo in Gross Point, Michigan. Now, anyone who doesn't know what Gross Point, Michigan is, it's, it's just a very wealthy enclave of rich people. But it also was ground zero for the mafia. The Italian mafia in Detroit has a very, let's say, it's present. Everybody knows it, but it's not something you talk about. It's not something that's out there, which is very much unlike that in um, New York, for example, in Philadelphia, where it's just out there in the open. Everybody's talking about it. Guys are connected. They want everybody around them to know they're connected. It's this completely different dichotomy in Detroit. Super secretive, and it's almost all family, blood-related. Even as a child, Gunner quickly realized the people in the community treated his family differently than all the others. I've been asked this many times, you know, but when did I know my family was the mafia? To be perfectly honest, I think I just always knew. Because the way people treated my family was different than the way other people got treated. For example, we could go to the store. There's a little corner store. A guy named Gus owned it, a Greek guy. And he wouldn't take my money. So I could go to there buy an ice cream or some candy. And he said, oh, no, no, no. Tell your grandpa I said hi and push my money back and give me whatever. But he'd take my friend's money. And then when I go in there with my grandparents, he's oh, how you doing? Here, take this, you know, rose for you. And he's always giving stuff to them. So when I got to be, I don't know, must have been five years old, there was a girl I had a crush on. Her name was Jackie Reed. And she had a party. She didn't invite me to the party. So afterwards, I asked her, why did you invite me to the party? You know, it's kind of feelings for her. And she says, my mom said you're in the mafia. I didn't know what the mafia even is. So I quoted my uncle Pete, who's only 12 years older than me. So he's probably 18, 19 years old. I said, what's the mafia? And he just says, it's our family. It's just our family. After his parents divorced, Gunner and his mom moved in with his grandparents. At his grandfather's home in Gross Point, it was impossible not to notice the constant stream of mobsters wearing gold chains arriving at the house in Cadillacs. Their gunner spent his formative years surrounded by the mafia elite. That's until he was about 10 years old, when his mother managed to get back on her feet again and her mental health stabilized. So we got a little house out in uh, Harrison Township, Michigan. Not a nice house, a little house, but it was in a nice neighborhood across the street from the lake. And I call those my wonder years. So in the next three and a half years, I lived in this normal kind of environment. Although my mother digressed and became mentally ill, she had some nervous breakdown. She was sick. Our house became just squalor. She wasn't working and we were on welfare. The house was a mess. Laundry wasn't done. I loved it though, because I could just go run the streets with my friends in the neighborhood. And all we did was go fishing every day and play in this little woodlock called Lakelock. We just build boards and go ride our bikes. It was a good time for a normal young kid. And that's what I did for three and a half years. And it was like the only normal three and a half years that I ever had in my life. 
Perhaps predictably, Gunner developed a reputation at school for getting into fights and other poor behavior. Despite repeated tests confirming a high IQ in the upper 120s, classifying him as a gifted student, school was not an environment that allowed Gunner to excel. Instead, it was an environment that was constantly punishing him. But Gunner wouldn't have to look very far to find a curriculum that would engage his interests. Instead of learning lessons at school, Gunner turned to his mobster uncles to learn the types of lessons he'd carry with him for the rest of his life. Lesson 1. There's always a way to get what you want. We used to go to my grandparents' house every weekend. So Friday night, we would drive to Gross Point and then go home Sunday night. On the way there one day, I see this mini bike on the side of the road. It's for sale for $100. For whatever reason, I got it in my mind. I wanted that mini bike. And I said, oh, Pete, buy me this mini bike. I want this mini bike. And he said, I'm not buying no freaking mini bike. He says, listen, go to the, the 7-Eleven, which is like a liquor store, a chain liquor store in Detroit. He says, you go in there and you get the Jerry Lewis can. It's a little can where you take it and you stand out front of the store and you jingle it. Would you like to donate the muscular dystrophy to Jerry Lewis? People put chains, their spare chain, drop it in the can. So go stand out in front of the store for a while, get your money. I don't know. Now, this is my uncle who's telling me this, who I look up to. He tells me this is okay to do. I don't know any better. I'm a, I'm a 10-year-old kid. So I go get this, and I jingle in front of the store for a while, and I get like 10 bucks. I'll be here all day. So I come up with a plan. Jump on my bike, and I take my can up to this Kmart that was like five miles away, which is a long ways for a 10-year-old to go. I don't care. I, I got a plan. I'm an industrious little kid. And I stand in front of it for like four hours. I fill this can up three times. I keep dumping it out in a bag. So I come back and I've been gone all freaking day. I've been gone like six hours. My mom never even knew I was gone. Nobody knew I was gone. So I dump it all on the floor. I count my money. I got 140 bucks. So I call my dad. I said, Dad, I got the money for this mini bike. I don't even remember where I told him he got the money. My dad picks me up, takes me down to where the mini bike is. He gets to knock the price down to 95 bucks, and I get the mini bike. So that's kind of my first score, if you will, in organized crime. Two years later, when Gunner was 12, his uncle Nicky would teach him and a few of his cousins lesson two, the house always wins. He sits us all down at the table. He says, I'm going to teach you guys how to play poker. And um, teaches us the hands and what's what, you know, take about an hour. He divvies up pennies. He gives everybody 100 pennies. He says, I'm going to cut the pot. I'm going to cut everybody 10%. We don't even know what the hell that is. One winner takes all. Next thing you know, my cousin Anthony, he wins the pot. And my Uncle Nicky says, so who's the big winner today? And we're all like, Anthony. He's like, nah. He's like, look in front of me. He's got a pile of pennies in front of him. He says, I never played a hand. And I got a pile of pennies. The rest of you lost all your money. Anthony got lucky. He says, never bet against the house. That's a sucker's bet. But if you're going to gamble, you beat the house. And it was one of those things that stuck with me in, in my mind, and I never forgot it. And soon it was time for lesson three, Mafia Mathematics. Kid from the neighborhood worked at this bike store. He had a real cool bike. He was a freestyler. And he was always out on the street doing these tricks on his bike. And I'd watch him. I just was fascinated. I thought they were awesome. I was like, man, can you teach me how to do that? He's like, you got to have the right bike. He said, come up to the bike store where I work. So I went up there, and I was looking at bikes. He says, you know, this is the bike you want. It was a Haro Master. 
So I told my mom, can you buy me that bike for my birthday? She's like, I can only afford a hundred dollars. I'm like, mom, the bike's 300 bucks. She's like, well, all I can give you is a hundred. So when I go to see my grandparents for the weekend and my uncle Pete's there, and again, he's just, you know, young, hustling, wise guy. He's always there. He's always around. I said, uncle Pete, man, buy me this bike. I need 200 bucks to buy this bike. He kind of laughs. And he says, I'm not buying you no effing bike. Go get your cousin Frankie. I'm like, well, why? He says, just go get your cousin Frankie. You know, Frankie was a bad kid. Frankie's doing life in prison for murder, multiple murders. He says, go get Frankie. So I go get Frankie. He only lived a block away. So I tracked Frankie down, playing it somewhere. I said, Uncle Pete wants to talk. Bring him back. Uncle Pete says, listen, Lato's going to give you 50 bucks to steal a bike for him. Go up to Gross Point South, school hour, and steal the freaking bike. He wants a harrow. Frankie's like, yeah, I got you. I'll have it next weekend when you come back. Come back the next weekend. And I go track down Frankie, and he's got the bike. I gave him 50 bucks, and I got to keep 50 bucks. So I'm like, okay, so this is how it works. And so this is this evolution that's preparing my mind, my uncle's setting the stage for how I would act for a period of my life. After teaching the budding young gangster the tricks of the trade, one of Gunnar's uncles decided to give the teenager his first job working for the family. My uncle tells me, listen, I need you to do something for me. I said, well, what is it? So he explains, there's this guy who's a degenerate gambler and a cokehead. This guy owes me all this money, right? And he manages one of the most high-end places in Metro Detroit. And they're famous for their perch. So we figured out a way to, we're going to get this money for him. So what he's going to do, Harry's going to put you on the books as a baker. I'm like, I don't know how to freaking bake. He's like, you don't have to bake. Listen to me, Lonzo. Shut up for a minute. I said, listen, you don't got to do nothing. Every week, you're going to walk in there, you're going to get your paycheck, and you'll bring it to me, and I'll give you 50 bucks. That's it. He's like, yeah. So I said, okay. In order to pay down his debt to the mob, Harry, the restaurant manager, secretly placed Gunner on the restaurant payroll as a baker. Even though he never actually worked a single day, the manager still clocked Gunner in every week for 35 hours. So I go up there, and I come through the back door, and I walk through the kitchen, and you just go in down this hallway, and there was a lady in the back, and you'd give her your name, and she'd give you your check. It was like 350 bucks. That was that. It was like $350 check. And so I would pick that check up, bring it to my uncle, and give it to him, and he'd give me 50 bucks. While picking up the bogus paychecks from the restaurant, Gunner's industrious way of thinking had him hatching a new scam, counterfeit fish. After seeing kitchen staff portioning out the restaurant's signature dish, filet of yellow perch, he couldn't help but notice how similar the expensive yellow perch looked to the white perch he and his friends could catch by the thousands in Lake St. Clair. That's when Gunner convinced Harry to buy white perch from him at half the price of the yellow perch. The white perch would then be sold on the menu as yellow perch, leaving Harry to pocket the profit and the customers none the wiser. So we'd go out and catch a couple hundred pounds of these perch. We'd load them in a garbage can and we'd take them to this place called Samson's Fish Market. We'd pay them 35 cents a pound of filet. So now I'm basically selling them for a little over a dollar a pound profit. And that was a, another evolution of my criminal career, which is funny. Selling fake perch was uh, one of my first rackets. Despite his success on the streets, Gunnar's problems at school continued to get progressively worse when he failed the eighth grade. 
an event that was psychologically devastating to him. He began selling drugs and making some serious money on the streets. For a 14-year-old anyway. Eventually, Gunner was expelled entirely from his junior high. The only people not in school at the time were junkies and drug addicts and low-life scumbags, thieves, whatever. These became my, my associates, you know. At age 16, Gunner gave school another shot and enrolled as a freshman at the local high school. And for a while, he actually stayed out of trouble. But before long, Gunner found himself hanging out with the wrong crowd. I started hanging around these other cats. We all skipped school, sneak out there at once. We'd smoke weed in the bathroom. So this kid, Ricky, who's an absolute scumbag, he starts breaking into lockers. So one day, Ricky says, my brother gave me this leather coat, and I'll give it to you for a bag of weed. First thing I said, I said, man, this ain't one of the ones you stole, is it? He's like, no, 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 my brother gave me this one. Anyways, wear this coat to school the next day, and the kid who owns the coat sees me wearing it, reports it to the school cop, and then I get to even conceal stolen property. But I don't tell on my boy. I don't say where I got it. I'm not going to rat. That's how I was cut. It just wouldn't rat. And they kicked me out and said, you can't come back. And that was just bad. After being expelled, Gunner leaned into the skills he was good at. Selling drugs, making money using his fists, quickly developing a reputation as a guy you didn't want to mess with. School got out at 2.55. At 3 o'clock, there's nine cars pulling up to my house to buy a bag of weed. And they'd all get out of the car, walking up, counting money. And I, I came to a point where I actually punched the guy in the face because my neighbor's working in his flower bed. And he comes walking up and says, yo, man, I, I need an eighth, man, but I only got $22. Can I give you three bucks on Friday? And I just punched him in the mouth. What the f What's wrong with you, man? I said, you see my freaking neighbor? What are you, an idiot? With business booming on the streets for Gunner, he began employing a small crew of drug dealers to keep customers from showing up at his house. He also started selling more than marijuana and expanded his dealings into selling steroids at the gym. His supplier for the steroids was a big-time dealer named Joe D. I knew him and his crew. They were intimidating. A bunch of big, muscle-bound, like, you know, wise guys. So I pulled him aside in the gym one day and said, Hey, Joe. I'm Pete Toko's nephew. I said, trust me, bro. I'm just trying to make some money. He's like, all right, here's my number. Come over to the house. So I come to the house, and I go in there, and I dress real nice. I'm in a shirt, tie, or suit. And so I look at his safe, and he's got all these, like, thousands of bottles of this stuff. He's like, what do you want? He said, take what you want. I'll write it down, and then just give me the money, you know, when you got the money. So that's what I did. I took my, and I started selling these steroids to all these guys. Eventually, what happened was I ended up getting set up. I didn't realize you introduced me to a cop. Several thousand dollars worth of steroids I sold directly hand-to-hand -to, -hand to the cop. They don't bust me right away, though. So I make several thousand bucks, keep doing my thing, I'm selling weed. Don't know that the freaking cops are all over me watching everything, everybody's wired up. I'm just going about my life stupidly. And then they wait to bust Joe D. The Joe D bust happens. It's like a huge shockwave. Boom, I remember walking in the gym that day. People were kind of looking at me funny, and everybody in the gym knew that I was a little drug dealer. Gunner's formative years came to a screeching halt when he was sent away to jail for six months for his role in the steroid ring. But instead of being pushed away from a life of crime, 17-year-old Gunner found himself right in the middle of it. So when I get out of jail, I go live with my grandparents again. My grandpa kept crashing his car. 
minor things, but he kept crashing into things. And I said, Grandpa, why does he keep crashing the car? His eyes are going bad. So one day I'm driving with him. He like blows a red light. Jesus, Grandpa, you're going to kill us. And I'm saying, let me drive. And so I said, well, you got to go see your Bombadis because he's a layoff bookie. So all day he was driving around picking up money, dropping off money. He's driving around with this guy and that guy. And these are high-level mob dudes. The highest level. That's it. Gunner's role as his grandfather's driver allowed him to rub shoulders with the Detroit Mafia elite. And before long, it was time for them to finally tell Gunner what his family was really about. So that's about the time my Uncle Pete kind of sat me down. And he says, you know who Uncle Jack is, right? He's like, he's the boss of the whole family. Then he starts breaking down each character, each one of these men that are my grandpa's goombatis, men that I've grown up with, men that I've been around my entire life. I was around them, but I didn't know the real infrastructure or the structure at all. But my Uncle Pete gave me the whole breakdown, the breakdown of the rackets, who controls what, how they have politicians in their pocket, how they have judges in their pocket, how they have cops and FBI in their pocket, how they control the municipal contracts in the city. Every major municipal contract in the city, it was mob owned. everything. And I was just shocked. Like, I didn't know any about this. There was something about the hard-headed, scrappy youngster that reminded the old guard of what it was like in the early days of the mob. Busting heads, hustling, and getting their hands dirty. Before long, Gunner caught the eye of one of the most infamous and dangerous mobsters in American history, Tony Giacalone. Tony Giacalone and Tony they're all sitting at his table and he says in Sicilian, I want you to give Alonzo a job at the shop. I was bouncing and already selling drugs. I'd been out of jail two, three weeks. I didn't want to go to some nine to five job, whatever. I had no idea that what my grandpa was implying was not go to work at some machine shop, a legit square job. It was to go to work for the mob. Tony Jack was the street boss. There's a lot of stories that I heard about guys who rubbed Tony Jack or his crew the wrong way. And they would hurt him. You know, all kinds of murders and rumors of murders. And so... They kind of did strike fear in the community. The reason why everybody was so scared of Tony, he did a lot of stuff before I came of age, including Jimmy Hoffa. He's the number one suspect in the Jimmy Hoffa disappearance. He was going to meet him that day. One of Gunner's first assignments was to threaten some kids who were bullying Tony's nephew. So I flying over there 100 miles an hour, and I, I said, which one do you put your hands on my cousin? And they all freeze up playing basketball like eight of them. I said put your hand on it again I'll be back and I'll smash every one of you bitches you got that and they're all like uh so I went and told Anthony I said listen I ain't gonna bother you no more never again don't worry about it if they do call me I'll come back and they, they did he told his uncle like these guys terrified of me now because of this after Gunner's first job Tony was impressed it wasn't long before Tony gave Gunner another job an assignment that gave Gunner another opportunity to prove himself as the kind of muscle Tony could rely on for his street operations. I get a call one morning, it's like seven o'clock in the morning, and it's him, Tony Jack. And he's like, listen, I need you to handle something, man. I have a friend, a girl, and I'm assuming it was his girlfriend, his girlfriend. He's like, her ex-husband showed up drunk last night, smacked her around and passed out at her house. Can you handle that? He didn't say what to do, he just said, can you handle that? I said, yeah, don't I got it, give me the address. I jot down the address, hang up the phone, Call my workout partner, Dario. I said, Dario, come on, man. We've got some work to do. Right away, he said, do I need my piece? I said, no, no. Bring, bring a freaking baseball bat, a pool stick or something. You know, wear your gloves. 
And so we go to the house and I knock her quietly on the door. And she comes to the door and all I said was, where's he at? He's in the back sleeping. I said, shh, I said, get the kids out of here. And then I walked in the bedroom and the dude was passed out. I slammed my hand on the wall above his head. Boom, boom, boom. I said, get it up. I said, it's time to go. And I started yanking him out of bed to drag him out. And he tried to fight. I wasn't going to demolish the dude, but he tried to fight, like threw a punch at me. So I had this huge nugget ring, big, huge, fat nugget ring. And I grabbed him out of hair with one hand and I was like, and just smashed him. The man that Tony sent Gunner to rough up had broken one of the cardinal, unwritten rules of the mafia. Never lay your hands on a woman. If you disrespect a woman, be it a daughter, somebody's girlfriend, somebody's wife, if you abuse them, you might get one warning and a beating. If you are a repeat offender, you could come up missing or end up dead. In one case, there was a guy messed with the girl. They wanted me to kill him. I got a cousin in the woods with a hunting rifle. He's gonna shoot him in the head. So right when we pull up, we're loading our guns, we're gonna walk out into the woods and this guy's gonna bite the bullet, literally. Just by fate, a cop pulls up out of the blue. And I actually had a warrant for my arrest, but he took the money right on the spot, wrote me a receipt for it, whatever. But of course that put a kibosh on the hit. Then there'd be a record of me there at that time. They find a body, so we called it off. They ended up killing him a couple months later. For anyone brazen enough or dumb enough to break this rule, guys like Tony Giacalone sent guys like Gunner to handle it. Now that Gunner had proven himself, Tony Jack had bigger jobs in mind for him. Tony at that point knew I was serious business. And well, that was the turning point in, upon which Tony says, listen, I want you to go up to Hazel Park Racetrack, the horse track that is owned by the boss and the underboss. It was given to them by their fathers as like college graduation presents. Basically, every gambling degenerate in town hangs out there. Every freaking wise guy, low-level wise guy, hangs out there. Every bookie hangs out there, and every Shylock hangs out there. Tony would assign me to various books. These guys were having trouble getting money from people who owed, who are welching or hiding or whatever. They would call me, and I was one of a handful of guys in the family that they would send. Although he'd successfully carved out a position for himself within the organization... Gunner didn't particularly enjoy his role as a mob enforcer. Behind Gunner's fists and reputation, he was really an ideas man at heart. He'd rather be scheming, scamming, and being creative. I never enjoyed that life. I never enjoyed being that guy. No, I knew some sociopaths. Both my cousins, Johnny and Frankie, were sociopaths. They were violent. They liked it. They enjoyed robbing people, shooting people. They got off on it. I didn't. I was never comfortable with it. I hated that part of the life. I hated all that. I liked the juice that you get in town, the extra respect, never wait for a seat, get VIP'd at every table, get comped everything where you go. That was great. Eventually, Gunner wasn't just being asked to kill people. He was being ordered to. I literally said I won't do it. I liked the guy. It was one of my uncle's paisans. This loudmouth mob wannabe. That's all he was. He acted like a mob which he shouldn't have. And he was always talking and running his mouth. And it got under the skin of some people. And so they warned him, warned him, and he just kept doing it. And so they came to me, sat me down, and said, listen, you're going to kill him. You know, and I'm like, I'm not killing him. You, know, you got to kill him. And I said, I'm not freaking killing him. 
This is what my Uncle Pete said to me. What if I go to Uncle Jack and tell him that you won't follow orders? I looked him dead in the eye. I said, listen, man, I'm not a freaking made guy. You can't tell me what to do. You're going to tell Uncle Jack, who I don't even barely talk to. What, what are they going to say? They're going to kill me because I won't kill a guy who's a friend of mine? I said, I'm not doing it. Find someone else to do it. And my uncle at that point kind of laughed it off and said, okay, whatever. He tried to like squeeze me into doing it, seeing if I would, see how far he could push me. And I said, no, I'm not doing it. Even when Gunner flatly refused to kill for the mafia, they made sure he still played his role. If he wouldn't kill for them, he'd still have to get his hands dirty. So they ended up getting some bikers to do it. A couple weeks later, I get a call from my uncle, tells me to come over. I go over, he says, listen, you got to go identify the guy's body. Then I get in a fight with him there. When I meet, he's like, because you know who he looks like. You know the guy. You need to make sure it's him. Because they paid the contract a lot of money, like 20000 bucks. So I jump in my car. It's in the ghetto of Detroit, down in a real bad neighborhood. They dumped them in the garage of an abandoned house. And I go down there and pull up, park, walk up this driveway to an abandoned house. And I can smell it before I even get there. You know what that smells like? So I went in there and saw him. And his head was like almost like blown in half. And I later said to my uncle, I'm like, yeah, it's him, but it looks like they shot him with a machine gun. He says, nah, the first two shots didn't kill him for whatever reason, so they had to hit him another time. I definitely never wanted to be any part of that, never. To be perfectly honest, the entire time I was involved in that life, I battled this moral compass of mine, which is kind of ironic. Everybody thought I was a real violent guy. They thought I was a hyper-violent guy. Because I was always beating somebody's ass and knocking a guy out. But it was usually somebody who deserved it. Somebody he needed it, like a tough guy or bully or whatever. But in all reality, I just never enjoyed that life. And to be perfectly honest, when I ended up going to prison, it was a relief. Besides taking on muscle jobs for the family, Gunner also continued to run his own hustles on the side. As a result of one of those hustles, the family got word from a source inside the ATF that there was an indictment coming down against Gunner. To avoid the charges, Gunner fled to New York City, where he got connected with another crew of gangsters. But while Gunner continued to run scams and provide muscle in New York City, he discovered something. A passion. Something he loved. Something, as it turned out, he was really good at. Football. I was playing semi-pro football in New York under an alias and won a championship my coach sent my highlight reel to this NFL agent scouting for NFL Europe, and he saw my highlight reel and he met me, and he said, I can get you a trial in the NFL. You're like a phenomenon. So I said, awesome. So I go back to Detroit, and I'm preparing to go into this uh, NFL scouting combine, if you will, and I broke my ankle. Gunner's hopes of playing professional football were completely shattered, literally, when he rolled his ankle, playing catch in the streets with some neighborhood kids. He was 27 years old and perhaps, for the first time in his life, had allowed himself to dream about a life outside of the family, a life outside of organized crime. The death of his new dream was emotionally devastating, leading him down a dark path that would land him in prison within 20 months. Around that time, my best friend dies, so I start using drugs on and off, pain pills, which eventually led to heroin right before I got locked up. But I basically started doing a lot of crime, really bad stuff. It wasn't concise. It wasn't as organized as I was before. 
I started robbing drug dealers, started robbing pimps. I was living a good life. I had every toy, jet ski, four-wheeler, motorcycle, nice house. Everything really went out there on a rampage towards the end, and nobody really knew. That's the kind of crazy part. Not even my girlfriend knew. Gunner's downward spiral produced a brazen, reckless crime spree that could have only ever ended in a few ways, and all of them bad. In the end, getting busted almost certainly spared Gunner from an even worse fate. I had just bought my beautiful new house, and it was just beautiful. And I burned my drug dealers. I freaking robbed some other drug dealers. Some people owed me money. I owed this guy money, and I didn't have it. So I said, F it. And I went and robbed the bank, and I got busted. Gunner's bank robbery attempt involved using a woman on the inside who was the manager of the bank. But what Gunner didn't know was that she tipped the police off in advance. Kid's mother was the manager of the bank and was supposed to give me like $750,000 worth of cash. Everything I told her to do, she did it. But there's a tracking device and a high-speed chase. Crashed my car, got out and ran. They caught me, they beat my ass. Six cops beat my ass so bad that I had to go to the emergency room, get stitched up and get a full body CAT scan because I was so black and blue. So I get 17 capital charges ranging from extortion, armed robbery to bank robbery, bunch of gun violations, kidnapping, you know, just on and on and on. It was just a lot of bad stuff. Gunner's prison sentence of 13 to 50 years marked the end of a 10-year career as a street-level gangster, a sentence that not even the family could help him get out of, just like his uncle Pete had warned him. Think for a moment about the last mafia movie you watched. Usually, they end in tragic failure. It's a hail of gunfire like Scarface. It's Michael Corleone selling his soul to serve the family in The Godfather, or forced to live like a schnook in witness protection, like Goodfellas. These classics trace the rise and fall of some of cinema's most iconic anti-heroes, but they all lack a third and final act, redemption. Gunner's road to redemption began after a few fights in prison, landed him in solitary confinement. When I was in the hole, there was a, a Rubicon, if you will, where I decided I can go to prison and be a, the bad guy that I am, because what do I have to live for? I got all the 13 to 50 years. I mean, I got nothing. Nobody's going to wait for me and I have nothing. Or I said to myself, I can change and do something that will give me hope. It was there in the hole, staring up at the ceiling. Gunner began writing stories in his head and ideas for books. Characters and plot lines began to fill the spaces of his miserable cell. For 17 months, Gunner immersed himself in the worlds he was creating on the invisible pages of his mind. Immediately after being released from solitary confinement, Gunner bought the supplies he needed to begin writing, and once he started, he never stopped. I knew I had the gift as a writer. I don't mean like I'm good with words on a typewriter. I mean the creative gift, the ability to create these very complex plot-driven stories. I'm like, that's my gift. If I take this time in here and start writing these stories, that would give me hope. It'd give me a light at the end of the tunnel. I wrote an average of like 12 hours a day sometimes 14, 15 hours a day on my typewriter writing, editing, and it's all I did every day, six days a week. I took one day a week off while everybody else in prison was getting high, using drugs in the day room, playing cards, you know, telling war stories, whatever. I was laying on my bunk, grinding. They thought I was crazy. 
Well, then I'd hand them my book and say, well, read what I do. They'd all come back and say the same thing. Holy crap, dude. This is the best book I've ever read. I can't believe you wrote that. I'm like, really, man? Thanks, thanks. And then the next guy would come back, say the same thing. When you get two or 300 people have said it over the years, I mean, I'm starting to believe in myself now. Although getting praise from his fellow inmates had been encouraging, it wasn't until someone on the outside took notice that Gunner's life would take a dramatic turn. So I had my cousin Joe, who was the only guy I really still talked to, came and visited me. And he's like, man, I can tell, man, you're not yourself. You seem great, bro. You're just kind of dead in the eyes. You got nobody, you got nothing. I got, you know what I'm saying? And around that time is when Facebook came out. And then he said, man, why don't I start a Facebook page for you? Now put on there that you're a writer, that you're writing these books, and put on you're a Christian. You know, we were both Christians. He's a born-again Christian, and so was I. And so I'll put it out there, maybe connect with some old girls from the neighborhood or something. You know what I'm saying? Shortly after his cousin Joe created the Facebook page, a woman named Maria, who'd gone to school with Gunner way back in the eighth grade, happened to click on it. It was a jury winner month. I was bored out of my mind and I'm on Facebook and I'm scrolling through and I happened to see Al Lindblom's Facebook page. I don't have any memories of him, but it flashed back to just this, oh, that guy, I think actually most voted to go to prison back when we were in high school. We traveled in completely different circles. I was the nerd in high school who followed all the rules and did everything right, never got detention, never got suspended, and he was always in fights, and I knew him to be this delinquent, if you will, who dropped out of school and went to adult ed. And I happened to scroll through, you know, the little bio, and I saw that his cousin Joe had put together this Facebook page for him, and he had put the prison address and said that, you know, he's kind of lonely. He'd love to hear from old classmates or friends and that he was a writer, that he had written these novels while he was in prison and that he was a Christian. And at the time, it was really funny because I had been hoping to do this women's prison ministry at my church. But I was a newbie Christian and I felt a little intimidated by that, speaking face to face with somebody. Here I was like, oh, this guy's in prison. He's a Christian. He's a writer. I love to write. I love to read. I had just gotten a job in the publishing industry. And I thought, well, maybe I can help him out. Maybe I can lift his spirits a little bit. And next thing you know, I get a letter and it's this girl. She says, hi, you probably don't remember me, but um, I know who you are. We went to school together. I don't remember you much. All I remember is that you were kind of a bad guy, always fighting. You sold drugs. But I do see that you're a writer, and I did see that you're a Christian. She's like, I'm a new Christian. I was raised Muslim. Maybe we can correspond. And I also, by the way, I work for a publisher in New York. Maybe I can read one of your books, and if it's any good, maybe I can, you know, help put it in the right hands. And I wrote her back, and I said, that would be awesome. I'd love that. Thank you. I appreciate you. It's very nice to meet you, you know. And so she reads the book over three days on her iPhone. What really surprised me was understanding that yeah, this guy was a criminal, he was a felon, he's in prison. He was really, really smart. And he really did know how to write. And he led this life that seemed surreal to me before he got locked up in prison, but now he was paying the price for it. And he used the time wisely by writing these books. And so there came a point about three or four months in, eh, maybe not even that much, where I asked, okay, can I read this book that you wrote? And he had his friend send it to me, email it to me in a PDF. And I was completely blown away by it. I could not believe that this guy who dropped out in ninth grade, 
who never had any formal education, wrote this incredible book. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. And there came a point where I thought, I want this man who wrote this book. Gunnar and Maria's budding love story seems like something he might have created out of thin air. But sometimes, the truth is stranger than fiction. So we started writing our letters together, back and forth, and they started off with a couple pages here and there, but then they just were crossing in the wind, back and forth. I'd send him one, he'd send me one, and they started getting longer and longer, 12 and 15 and 20 and 40 pages, and a couple times we wrote each other like 70-page letters, like a big Christmas letter as a Christmas gift, because there were no other ways to give each other gifts. And what ultimately ended up happening was we peeled back each other's layers and we communicated in a way that couples just don't do these days. It's a dying art of writing love letters and not just love letters professing our love for each other, but diving deep. And so that's how we courted. For five or six years, we courted through these big, long letters, probably wrote each other, I don't know, gosh, thousands of pages of letters. So at one point, and she started falling in love with me. And, and I said, you can't fall in love with me. I got, you know, six more years in prison. Yeah, I don't want to ruin your life. And she wrote me back. She says, I think that I don't care. She's like, I think you're worth it. I will wait six years for you if you have me. And I said, of course, you know, you're the most amazing woman I've ever met. Are you kidding me? I'll marry you the day I get out. Every time the mailman would come in this little truck down our cul-de-sac and stop at the mailboxes, my heart would race and I'd have my face pressed up against the window. And as soon as they pulled away, I'd run out there and open up the mailbox. And I was just so in love with this man that even the words on paper, I would just squeal. <laughs> I would literally squeal because the excitement was so big. When you're a you know, 12 or 14 year old girl and you're dreaming about your marriage and your life with your husband, this fairy tale love that you'll have, it never comes up that it's going to be with a felon. But there's this saying out there that I've heard from a couple different writers that says something along the lines of, you have the love of your life and then you have your soulmate. And the difference between the two is one that you choose, the other gets chosen for you. And that's kind of what happened is I just fell madly in love with this guy and knew I was head over heels for him and that I didn't care what people thought. But then again, there were these moments where it was like, okay, let's let's get real here. People are gonna think you're insane. Nobody dates a guy who still has six years left in prison and who has a rap sheet that's a mile long. The good thing I think that really helped me was that I wasn't at the time all that close to anybody. And he was like an answer to my prayers. You know, I wanted somebody, I wanted this mate who would know me inherently inside and out and fall in love with me for who I am and really communicate with me. I wanted a communicator and he was certainly that. Through their letters, Gunnar and Maria learned they surprisingly had a lot in common despite their polar opposite upbringings. Raised by an extremely strict Muslim father, Maria says she felt like a prisoner throughout her childhood and could relate to Gunnar's desire for freedom. They also realized they shared something else, a love for the great outdoors, specifically the northern township of Escota, Michigan, where they both happened to have fond memories from their pasts. So there was something that when I was in the outdoors, 
It just clicked with me. That was my happy place. It was a freedom that I never had as a child. And so I threw out the idea like, hey, I work from home. What do you think about me moving up there and getting a place ready for you and just building this life for you to come home to up there? And he said, yeah, that'd be dope. So I did it. I just, I sold a lot of my belongings. I packed everything up. I found a couple of movers to help move me up from the Detroit area up to Ascoda. And my first house was this pretty quaint little, I don't know, like cabin sort of style home in the middle of the woods. I only had about four neighbors in a 20 square mile radius. I mean, it was deep in the Huron National Forest. After nearly 13 and a half years behind bars, Gunner was granted parole in 2016. And after being released, he immediately traveled north to join the woman who'd been waiting for him on the outside. Data and I got out, four guys picked me out from prison, took me out to breakfast, and then drove me five hours home to her where she was cooking a feast. That whole year before he came home was so chaotic. And it went by so fast that all of a sudden I found myself with just a few days left before he came home. And he had requested this big meal and I wanted to give him as much as I could. And it was a 90 degree day at the end of July, no air conditioning. And I had primped and I had tried to not sweat and look good for him. And there was so much going on in my mind and in my heart. It was all a whirlwind. She lives out in the middle of the woods. And so we, I said, pass the house, keep going, dropping me off in the woods. I snuck up on her. She was on the back deck. She's sitting there in a little dress by herself praying. And I walked up and I said, what's up, Bertie? That was his nickname for me. And I rolled my head around and there he was. We just ran to each other and kissed and embraced. And every single fairy tale movie ending that ever was, was wrapped up in that moment. And it was amazing. It was so, so beautiful. And so the very next day we went to the, the courthouse and I married her. My cousin and my boy is a witnesses, very teary eyed, emotional moment. And then I had my cousin take me down to this very private, secluded beach on Lake Huron, and he baptized me. He baptized both of us. And he asked me, why are you doing this? I said, because when I hit that water, I want everything that was past to be washed away. And that this is my new life. It starts right here. Gunner's life is a new twist on an old classic. Somewhere deep inside a cold, dark prison cell, he discovered a gift and a passion for writing. He found God and met the love of his life. His 13 years behind bars wasn't the end of his story. It was just the beginning. I had a lot of fun for the next several months, just kind of enjoying life. And then I published my books. And when I published those books, people went crazy for them. And they started calling us the next godfather. They're like, this freaking guy wrote the next godfather. Like, this is the godfather of our generation. It did really well. It like cracked the top 100 in it. I think it was either the first couple of days or first couple of weeks. And then I remember at one point it was listed on Amazon next to The Godfather. Godfather 1, and then there was another book, then my book, The Godfather 2 hardcover. And I was like, holy crap, get a screenshot of that. It's gone. Imagine the culture shock Gunner experienced leaving that prison in 2016 after 13 years on the inside. But the most shocking thing to Gunner was the feeling of freedom itself, true freedom. Freedom from his past life, freedom from his old ways, freedom to reinvent himself. When you get out of prison after that many years in a cage, 
becoming free, it is shocking and it's very hard to kind of adapt to it. Normally, guys I found who spend 10 years, 12, 15, 20 years in prison, they're mentally not right when they walk out. There's something wrong with them. And that happens to most guys. I'm very grateful that it didn't happen to me. The fact that I'm able to have a healthy relationship with my wife, my friends, and a burgeoning career as a writer and a personality, the fact that I can do all that after everything I've been through, including growing up in that family, seeing all the violence and the chaos and the crime, going to jail, then to prison, it just, it is a miracle. That's all I can say. It's literally a miracle. Now Gunner spends his days in northern Michigan, surrounded by the great outdoors, hunting, fishing, and proving every single day that change is possible. Somewhere, the 12-year-old version of Gunner is smiling from ear to ear, living those wonder years all over again. Ultimately, my writing did exactly what I set out to do. It gave me the life that I live today. The life that I lived right now in this beautiful home with my wife, all of it was a result of my writing. I went salmon fishing yesterday, been camping the week before. I mean, I live out in the country in a beautiful house, and I'm not rich, but um, I have the uh, potential to be very rich. Wealth doesn't make happy, but there are things that I want to do that require money, like traveling and doing all these adventures and things that I want to do. And then, you know, I won't have to work so hard. I'll be able to focus even harder on enjoying my life because I lost all those years in prison. And I guess you can't fight the fact that you lost 13 years and you want to make up for lost time. Throughout his entire upbringing, Gunner always displayed a knack for industriousness, running scams and making money. With his newfound freedom and passions, Gunner is tapping back into the old sense of industriousness he always had. But now he's doing things the legal way. So ultimately, my goal is to be successful as a writer at the highest level. For volumes one and two of my books and a volume three that's yet to be written, I would like to see a movie be made out of them. Possibly a TV series if it was done right, you know, a good Netflix or HBO series. Another three or four or five novels. I have eight more. I'm working on my ninth one. So I have a lot of content and material that I can keep publishing. And I want to see them be published because they're all very good stories. And then another thing, I have a, an apparel company that has the potential to be worth a lot of money. I actually started an um, internet company, a social media platform. It's on paper. I haven't got it launched. If I get to the next step money-wise, investment-wise, if I present this to like Google or something, that's a done deal. It's a very rare thing, I think, in the world, past and present and probably future, where somebody is so visionary, they work and work and work and hustle until they make that vision come true. I was never a big dreamer, and I'm still not a big dreamer. I would have been totally content to just be somebody's wife and, you know, be able to bake bread and do a job I love and raise some kids and have cats and my chickens. And that would be more than enough for me. But he has shown me that, you know, you can go after your dreams. He doesn't know the meaning of the word failure. He just keeps going and going and going until he wins. And if it's not happening in a certain path or in a certain way, then he just changes his tactic and goes in a different direction and tries something else. It's so rare, especially coming from somebody who was so hindered for such a big part of his life. I mean, 13 years behind bars would have broken anybody, but it didn't. It only furthered him 
in his motivation and his dedication to be something great and to do great things in this life. And that impresses the hell out of me. Just want to say a huge thanks to Gunnar Maria for the time they took speaking with us and sharing their stories. If you'd like to learn more about what they're up to, here's Gunnar Maria talking about their current projects. Also, you can find links in our show notes to Gunnar's YouTube channel, his website, clothing line, books, and social media, as well as a link to Maria's podcast. So you can find me on YouTube at Gunner Detroit. I have a, a variety of different shows, but primarily my main show is My Thing Tales Reform Gangster. I basically tell short stories, or not, not short, sometimes they're long, stories about things I was involved with before I went to prison. A lot of mafia stuff. I was born into a mafia family and grew up around a lot of mobsters and mafioso. I got pulled into that world as a teenager and just got deeper and deeper entrenched in crime, organized crime, and eventually ended up in prison for 13 to 50 years. I tell a lot of stories that happened from that time about various mafiosos, some, you know, things in the crime family, also things that weren't involved in the mob. And then I also talk about my prison time, my 13 years in prison. There was a lot of crazy stories and things that happened in prison. So I share it all there. I also have guests on. I've had some celebrity guests on, like Chris Hansen and Eric Sean, and also a lot of ex-gangsters, ex-mafiosos that come on the show to tell their story. So if you like that type of thing, check out my show, My Thing Tales Reform Gangster, at YouTube at Gunner Detroit. And my website is GunnerDetroit.com. You can find everything I do there from my apparel line, our thing apparel, to my books, to be a king volume one to check them out hope to see you there and uh, make sure you leave a comment and uh, talk to you then imagine a woman who devotedly waited over six years for her ex-mafia enforcer fiance to come home from serving his 13-year prison sentence and then imagine that she'd never even spend five minutes alone with him Yep, that was my crazy story. That's why, when I found myself less than a year from Gunnar Allen Lindblom's homecoming, I knew I had to document it in the form of an audio journal on my iPhone. As a result, I've chronicled all of the crazy ups and downs of my life the year before Gunnar came home from prison. My podcast, The Audio Diary of a Prisoner's Wife, contains the actual recordings of those audio journal entries starting in October 2015. In them, I talk about everything, how broke I became supporting my guy in prison, how hard it was to find a rental when engaged to a felon, my frantic attempts to lose weight and get in shape before I finally welcomed home the man I was about to marry. I describe in detail the story of my trip to the prison to partake in his parole hearing, the disastrous home check by his parole officer, and of course, the days leading up to his release. You can find my podcast by searching for Maria Lindblom or Diary of a Prisoner's Wife on all the major podcast platforms. The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness. And on Twitter, using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerrorecords.com.au slash G E. I can feel the madness. 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 I can
someone standing at my door I hope they can't get in cause I'm not prepared to run I can feel the madness Someone standing at my door I hope they can't get in cause I'm not prepared to run